Is your business two steps ahead or always one behind? If the latter, chances are you lack data and insights to confirm your instincts. Here's the deal. Leaders are trapped in a world where data and insights are still a luxury rather than a commodity. While you might have strong intuitions about your business, my guess is you're hampered by legacy institutions and capabilities that provide only surface-level data and insights that do very little to validate your assumptions. Join me on a journey with some of the world's most notable minds who will share with you their secrets in capturing and making data-driven decisions that power their business. I'm Maury Blackman, and this is Great Minds Think Data. Welcome to today's episode of Great Minds Think Data. With just over a week until the midterm elections, Democrats and Republicans are sharpening their messages and hitting the campaign trail in earnest. Democrat candidates are largely focused on abortion rights and Donald Trump, while Republicans are attacking Democrats for increased inflation and crime. Much is at stake for both parties. Democrats would like to maintain or even expand their majorities in the House and Senate, Republicans, without doubt, are seeking to disrupt the administration's progressive agenda and refocus the country on their priorities. Democrats have an uphill battle to fight. History has shown that the midterm elections are unkind to the current party in power. However, the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade provided hope that they could defy history. Republicans, for their part, are confident that citizens' pessimistic views on the economy, surging crime, and Democratic candidates' gaffes around parental rights for their children's education will not only tip the election in their favor, but will result in a tsunami that will give the party a mandate to roll back the current administration's initiatives, setting them up for even more success in 2024. The data seems to be favoring Republicans. Americans are ranking the economy and crime as a top issue of this election cycle. Further, in a recent premise poll, only 18% of likely voters felt the country was headed in the right direction, and 33% approve of President Biden's job performance. My guest today is Newt Gingrich. The former Speaker of the House and Time Magazine's 1995 Man of the Year led a revolution in 1994 as the co-author and architect of the contract with America. Under his leadership, Republicans swept the election, ending four decades of Democratic control of the House. Two decades later, Newt remains a force in U.S. politics through his speaking, writing, and his production company, Gingrich 360. In our conversation today, we will focus on how political issues percolate to the top and become primary drivers of election outcomes, his thoughts on the upcoming midterms, and finally, the U.S. current standing as a world leader. Welcome, Newt. Well, good to be here. You know, many times I've heard you frame political decision-making around the politics of life versus the politics of politics. My take is, while I might have an opinion about political matters, what's happening and impacting me in my daily life is really what's influencing attitudes towards elected officials. Am I thinking about this the right way? Well, I think uh, I learned this in part from Reagan. When people walk in a grocery store, I have a friend, for example, who has not bought steak for a year because it's just too expensive for their family budget. I have other friends who have really been hit by the cost of gasoline because they commute a long way to work. You have people who are very worried about crime because in their neighborhoods they know people who have been attacked. Uh, so I think that's what I mean by the politics of life. I mean, worrying about your child, worrying about what's happening in your neighborhood, worrying about what affects you. Uh, and then there are these big idea things that people talk about and debate about. But as a general rule, 
they don't directly affect my life. They may affect my opinion, but they don't affect my life. And if the issues that are in your life become dominant, then it's very hard to get the other issues to really matter because I'm too busy worrying about the practicalities of survival. I guess it's more like what's in our face at that moment. This is reminding me of something I learned in college, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. If I can't afford the basic necessities, what's going on at the higher levels of government, frankly, just doesn't matter. Right. And also, if in my life I'm experiencing something, so every night I look at the evening news and my local news reports another rape, another carjacking, another murder. Uh, I don't care what the political ads say. I feel worried about crime. Or I go to the store and I notice what's happened to the price of eggs, which a friend of mine was yelling about two days ago. And I don't care about the TV ad that tells me we don't really have inflation because I personally am seeing it. I think that's where when you get those kind of an impact building, uh, it's very hard to not deal with them. And I think that's part of what's characterized where we are right now is that uh, the team in charge can't actually explain that this is all working. uh, And that gives them a real challenge about what to campaign on. As you're sharing your thoughts, I'm wondering, are members of Congress immune from the politics of life? Our representatives are often accused of being out of touch. Well, I mean, first of all, you're not immune because your constituents aren't immune. Uh, And second, depending on how wealthy you are, I mean, if, if you're, look, if you're a multimillionaire, you may not feel the inflation because you have enough money to buffer you. Uh, if you live in a protected compound with security guards, you may not feel the level of uh, fear of crime uh, because you have things. But if you are an elected official, you have a real requirement to have some kind of antenna to find out what's happening to the people who vote for you. Uh, And if they come and tell you that they're in real pain, then they're in real pain. Yeah. You know, for many years now in Silicon Valley, we've been providing perks to our employees. Google really started this arms race by providing meals, snacks, drinks, and many other benefits. Microsoft, Facebook, Salesforce, Uber, and everyone else followed suit. So this notion of the politics of life is really resonating with me because I sense that in Silicon Valley, we subsidize our employees' lives in a way that shields them from some of the realities that other geographies face that we just simply don't. Does this make sense? Well, I think, I mean, you you gave some examples, but even there, you have people who may look at their 401ks and realize they're down 35%. Uh, You have people who have relatives who are not inside the bubble uh, and who are talking about what it's costing. You may have people who thought their house was going to go up in value and now it's gone down. Or somebody who thought they were going to buy a house, but the mortgage rates have now tripled in effective cost. So I think it's true that you you can have a gilded cage uh, for some number of people, but if you're having the kind of problems we're having, They affect everybody. And frankly, even somebody who is in a relatively protracted group, I'm told, I've not been there, but I'm told, for example, that San Francisco has really become unpleasant uh, because you have feces on the street, you have needles on the street, you have a crime rate. 
that affects you when you go home, unless you're the very, very wealthy and your chauffeured car is taking you to an enclave that is secure. Are Supreme Court decisions politics of life or politics of politics? Well, I think it's both. I think for depends on how you in, you internalize it. If if you think that, I'm assuming you're talking about the decision on Dobbs. Well, in and, general, I was definitely headed in that direction. Most, as a general rule, Supreme Court decisions are really about politics. They're not about life. They're decisions at a level beyond what you and I are going to experience every day, although they shape the environment in which we experience them. In the case of the abortion issue, for some people, it's a very personal and very direct issue, both for those who believe that they should have control of their own body and the government should interfere, and for those who believe that abortions murder and therefore the government has to interfere. So in that sense, it becomes a very personal issue. I mean, one way to test personal issues is, is it something that's hard to discuss at the Thanksgiving table? And if the passion is deep enough on both sides that you don't even want to bring it up, then you're involved in the politics of life. Yeah, I could not agree more. You know, when it comes to this specific issue, it seems like in the upcoming election, both Democrats and Republicans have tried to frame this as a politics of life matter. Who's winning? Well, in the case of abortion, it actually comes down to a question of who is seen as more extreme. If you have a Republican who is against any exceptions, then they're clearly extreme. Uh, If you have a Democrat who is for tax-paid abortion on the last day of the ninth month, then they're seen as extreme. And a large part of the abortion fight is a question of where are you in that continuum. The country at large uh, settles in on about 15 weeks with uh, the life of the mother, rape and incest as exceptions. Uh, and, and that's probably the center of the whole fight. Some restrictions, but not total abolishment. And so I think the, the whole struggle is over which side seems more extreme. And ironically, in the most recent polls, the Democrats actually come off as more extreme than the Republicans. So based on what you just said, is there a middle ground that Congress uh, could pass a law that could put this issue to rest? Is there a compromise somewhere? Well, I mean, I would, I would urge Congress to be passive and let the 50 states uh, sort through their own, their own solutions. Uh, I don't think that we need a national law at this point, and I don't think you could write a national law that would unify the country. Uh, I also think that, you know, even uh, then Judge Ginsburg, before she became a justice, gave a speech in the mid-90s and said that it was, it was clear that Roe versus Wade was both bad law and that it was unwise law because the country was talking to itself and working its way to some common ground. And as I said, I think probably something like 15 weeks and an exception for incest, rape, and life of the mother begins to be the common ground. Now, that won't satisfy a Catholic or fundamentalist Protestant or Orthodox Jew who wants you know, no abortion at all. Uh, and it certainly won't satisfy somebody who wants abortion on demand uh, up through the ninth month or even after they're born. But the country at large can have that conversation and can feel that it's reached a reasonable compromise it can live with. Is border security the politics of politics or politics of life? 
immigration is mostly about the politics of politics, unless it comes into your neighborhood. I think when you end up with um, an illegal immigrant raping a 10-year-old girl in Ohio, which happened, or when you end up with several illegal immigrants killing two policemen in North Carolina, then it begins to be the politics of life, and people begin to say, okay, enough already. Uh, but for the moment, it's still, it's still abstract. You know, it's something out there that's not in my neighborhood. It's not directly affecting me. And I think that's part of why we've tolerated uh, the level of uh, deliberate openness and incompetence that currently marks our southern border. As someone who grew up in Texas, I have the opinion that the current policy, or lack thereof, is reckless, dangerous, and unfair to the border states. I have a hard time understanding how the administration could get away with this, but it's clearly a politics of politics issue for 90% of the states that don't have a southern border. And while I don't agree with DeSantis and Abbott using people by sending them to sanctuary cities to make a political statement, I certainly see that they're attempting to make this a politics of life issue. The immigration issue is something we've dealt with for many years. And over the last 40 years, there have been various attempts to develop policies that make sense. There's really two issues as I see it. Reforming legal immigration in a manner that is both fair and advantageous to the country. Secondly, how to deal with illegal immigrants who are already here and working. They actually add value. This is further complicated by how to treat their children who by no fault of their own don't have legal status in this country. Is there a compromise on this issue? Um, I've always thought you could get to it if you were willing to take it one step at a time, but you'll never get to it if you try to write an omnibus bill because there are too many negatives that get into one. If you try to write a really big bill, it just has too many negatives and each negative brings a group of people who vote no. So, one of the lessons, I've, I voted for the, the uh, Simpson-Mazzoli Act in 1986, uh, which Reagan signed. And Reagan says in his diary that night that he signed it because the agreement was there would be amnesty for about 300,000 people and we would get control of the border and an enforceable work process. Well, in fact, there were 3 million people, not 300,000. We did not get control of the border. And we did not get an effective, enforceable work process. So the very reasons Reagan signed it were not met. I think because of that, those of us on the right would insist that we have absolute control of the border before we would consider any other immigration reform. I doubt very much if you can get immigration reform through as long as the border remains open. There are real challenges that we have here in Silicon Valley around this topic, but it's totally different than border control. It's around hiring tech talent. When you're a startup or a small business, having to compete for talent with the big tech firms such as Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Facebook, it's impossible. These companies, with all their cash, pay engineers high six-figure and seven-figure salaries. You can't compete. So our outlet is H-1Bs. Many of us have lobbied Congress for years to get more H-1Bs into the system. Even Steve Jobs famously chastised President Obama without success. So for me as an entrepreneur, this is truly a politics of life issue. What can we do? Well, we're actually, uh, at Gingrich 360, we're actually making a series of films on legal immigrants uh, who exemplify American exceptionalism because about 80% of the country favors legal immigration. So there, you want to separate these two very different issues. 
Americans are overwhelmingly opposed to illegal immigration, and they're overwhelmingly in favor of legal immigration. What about means testing? I think most Americans uh, would favor means testing in the sense that a person who comes here has to be able to maintain themselves and not become a public burden. That was the historic position in the country uh, and one which uh, we got away from to our disadvantage. I know it seems like I can't get off this issue, but it's such a hot button and personal issue for me. I ask about means testing because we allow young people from India and China to come over to California, get educated at some of the finest universities in the world. They work at our companies while getting their master's and PhDs, and then we send them back. On one visit to Washington with fellow tech leaders, we met with all the leaders from the Bay Area, and my representative, Jerry McNerney, made a shocking admission. He said, listen, I know you guys would like to staple a green card on the diplomas of every computer science PhD from Berkeley or Stanford who's come over from India or China, but it's not going to happen. Isn't that short-sighted? Yeah, in my judgment it is. I think that the uh, historically what made us unique was our ability to attract very high-quality people. If you go back and look at the Manhattan Project, for example, which built the atomic bomb, uh, you could not have done it without European emigres. Uh, it was the quality of the European scientists, whether it was Niels Bohr or Edward Teller or a, bunch, a whole bunch of them, plus the British scientists, uh, that made it possible for us to build a nuclear weapon in such a short time. And I think that historically, whether it's you know uh, Andrew Carnegie coming from Scotland and creating the largest steel company in the world and then uh, building 2,300 libraries, uh, as part of his legacy. The degree to which we've been enriched by people who come here, starting with Alexander Hamilton, I think is an integral part of the American story. Keystone Pipeline. Politics of politics or politics of life? Well, it was the politics of politics until gas prices went up. And that's where the, Democra- that's where the Democrats got into, into trouble because they didn't understand that their, their ideological passions would have real-world consequences. And so, you know, it's one thing to, you know, pay off the Greens by closing down a pipeline as long as no one notices. It's another thing to pay off the Greens by making everybody else in the country mad. And what they've discovered is that on a number of areas, uh, they have been paying off their ideological allies in a way which is infuriating something like 60 to 70 percent of the American people. And that ultimately comes back and really, you know, it just bites you. Got it. Is there a way forward? If you were advising the administration on this issue, what would you tell them? Well, I think the administration is hopeless. They are trapped in a world where the people they are relying on and the people they are listening to have a series of inputs that don't work. I, I always tell people you can put an egg in the freezer and it will get hard, but that doesn't mean it's boiled. And so they have this, you know, it, it, I mean, you saw the same thing happen in Europe where the elites all thought, you know, we can get rid of coal, we can get rid of, of nuclear power, we can get rid of natural gas, and somehow we're going to wave a magic wand and green industry and green energy production is going to bounce up in a way that uh, would probably take 70 to 100 years of technological advance to actually achieve what they thought they could do in five or 10 years. Well, they're about to have a horrendously bad winter. Maybe as many as 40% of the houses in Britain 
may end up with black mold because uh, they're they're too moist and they're not going to be heated. I mean, we we have no idea how bad this winter is going to be. I see it. And Germany obviously hitched their wagon to Russian gas. And clearly it's going to be a very, very tough winter for them as well. Right. I'm wondering, Newt, you know, we're such a large and diverse country. Everybody's interest on our line. Are some issues politics of life just depending on your location? Sure. You know, the, the opposition to the Vietnam War on the college campuses exploded when they extended the draft to college students. Uh, prior to that, they'd been sort of anti-war, but they hadn't thought about it much because they were all exempt. The morning that they had announced they were going to draft college students, the campuses went crazy. That's an interesting example of the, the shift from the politics of politics, some, this affects somebody else, to the politics of life, this affects me. And I think that's a natural, you, you can go around and watch these things evolve and see how they change. And, you know, if, if you are, heating oils are relevant in South Florida. Heating oil is a huge deal in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. And so that would be an example. The midterm elections, do you think the Republican Party has done a good job framing the issues around the politics of life and staying away from the politics of politics? Yeah, I think, I think partly because they're so overwhelming this year. I mean, it's when, when you have the level of inflation we've had, you have the level of logistics supply chain problem we've had, you have the level of crime we have, you have the level of drug overdose we have. In a sense, they shape themselves, but the Republicans have been pretty good about staying on those themes. If you look at their advertising, you look at their speeches, they pretty heavily stick with, I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's the crisis of uh, health, of uh, cost of living, uh, the problem of crime, the challenge of the border and attached to it, drug addiction and, and uh, drug overdoses, the degree to which the school systems have both collapsed educationally and moved towards radical indoctrination. Those are really the four big underlying drivers. And I would say the campaigns I've talked to all get that. I mean, I, I don't know of any campaign that hasn't, partly because it's so obvious. Right. You know, th- this is one of those cases where you don't really need a very sophisticated poll. Just go stand outside a grocery store. What advice would you give Republican candidates as we enter into this final push? Turn out the vote. I mean, if they, if they turn out the vote, they're going to win. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't think it'll even be close. But they just have to make sure everybody goes and vote. I mean, in the end, it's one of the things I love about the system. After all the polls are done, I want to know what the first precincts look like. I want to see how many people care enough to show up and vote. Uh, and then I'll believe what we're seeing. Like everybody else, I'm, I'm amused by the polls. I pay attention to the polls vaguely. But I also know that the polls aren't real. What's real is how many people are motivated to get up and go vote. My advice the last two weeks, the argument's over. I mean, the Democrats aren't going to be able to change it, uh, and the Republicans don't need to change it. So they just need to grind out the same arguments, stick to the same big topics, uh, and then make sure their people vote. Do debates matter? They can. I think a lot of people thought that Herschel Walker was going to do very badly and that uh, Senator Warnock, who is a professional preacher, was going to do really well. 
And uh, the only poll I've seen that asked the question, Walker actually uh, outscored Warnock. So in that case, I mean, had, had Walker collapsed, then people could have said, yep, I thought he was just a football player. That would have severely hurt him. I think that's an example. I think that uh, Ryan, uh, in, the Democrat in Ohio, lost the debate to J.D. Vance very badly over the issue of illegal immigration and abortion. So sometimes it really does matter. On the other hand, there are other things that can happen that have an impact that you just don't know at the time. I mean, you know, if you go, if you go back to Dukakis riding in a tank, that one picture just sort of captured not him. He had no idea. Or, or uh, John Kerry deciding that he would windsurf while wearing clothing totally appropriate to uh, the uh, Cape Cod area. And the whole rest of the country stared in disbelief, thinking, you know, how can a guy wearing that and windsurfing be president? And I think he had no idea how out of sync it was with the country at large. Right. You know, those are cringe moments, in my opinion, where handlers and PR people are just shaking their heads and wishing that never happened. What's the most fascinating Senate race in your mind? Uh, Well, I think the most important is Herschel Walker. I think if Walker wins, he will be such a disruptive force in the Senate because he's totally his own person. And he's, you know, he's going to do what he thinks is right. And he's not particularly intimidatable. And I think that he will be fascinating. Well, I know you've said that you don't really pay much attention to polls. In Walker's case, he's been behind for quite a long time now. Yeah. I think it's highly unlikely that Walker loses this race. And I'll tell you why. Because I feel like every single Republican candidate is going to vote for Walker. Right. And none of them are going to vote for Warnock. But I think at least 10, 15, maybe even 20% of the African-American vote in Georgia will vote for Walker. Potentially. Especially if you're a male over 50 who loves football. Right. I mean, Walker's a legend. He's a hero. Well, I I think the most effective ad in that campaign was... Former coach Vince Dooley, who is a legend in Georgia, uh, talking about having coached uh, Herschel at the University of Georgia, and it's just and it's an ad that sort of resonates if you're a Georgian. But I mean, it's it's still a close race. The, the most recent survey shows Walker up two or two and a half points, but still a close race. It's not you know it's, I wouldn't automatically say it's that it's over. But there are a couple of other races. I mean, I think the contest between Oz and Fetterman in Pennsylvania. I was born in Harrisburg, and my brother still lives there. And I, I saw him one day, and Fetterman had been making a really big deal about Oz being from New Jersey, and had done a whole bunch of social media. And I said, "What do you think?" He said, "Well, actually, Fetterman is more frightening than New Jersey." <laughs> so he said, "I have a hunch none of this is going to work," you know. And Oz, Oz is his own person in a different way, and is extraordinarily smart. So if Oz wins again, he'll bring a different quality of leadership to the Senate. I mean, the Senate needs a new generation of fresh energy and fresh blood to break out of the old boy network and the kind of passivity that currently defines it. And I'm, I'm encouraged we have a number of candidates around the country who could do that. One race where it appears the debates are making a difference was the Fetterman-Oz debate. Most of the data from polls show that 85% of the viewers felt like Oz won the debate and is the stronger candidate. And based on what I saw, 
I felt really bad for Fetterman. It was it was really tough to watch. Yeah, the one between Fetterman. Yes. Well, just just because it's so odd. I mean, you're you're going to have a debate in which all of it gets typed because Fetterman apparently, after his stroke, literally can't understand audio, so he has to read it. And we'll see. I mean, it's you know. But I think what I think if Fetterman loses, he's not going to lose because of his stroke. He's going to lose because of crime. In his positions. Yeah. Well, the fact that his actions. I mean, he he actually voted to release twenty five murderers. And that's the kind of record that's real that you can drive home. And but when Philadelphia now has the highest number of carjackings in its history, virtually the highest number of murders in its history, 70% of the people in Philadelphia say crime is their number one issue. It beats out inflation. You know, Newt, to me, as I watched the debate, I could not help but think about Reagan and Carter in 1980. Oz even closed the debate with his version of, are you better off than you were four years ago? Even if Fetterman had fared better, it would still be a tough contest. No, I think it would be. And I, I mean, the Fetterman weaknesses, other than the hoodie and the tattoos and all that stuff, the Fetterman weaknesses are basically about issues. I mean, he's way too radical for Pennsylvania. What has buoyed him up is that when Oz won the primary, he'd had $40 million in negative advertising by his primary opponent. So, I mean, the hole he had to dig himself out of uh, which took several months, was pretty remarkable. And we'll see. I was, I was up in, uh, in York, Pennsylvania last week with Oz and with uh, Sean Hannity and about 800 people. It was, a, it was a good event. But if you ask me, I mean, races where I look and I think, now I'll tell you, there are a bunch of fascinating races. Leora Levy is a real underdog in Connecticut, but Connecticut is changing very rapidly. They had two policemen killed in Bristol who literally were ambushed. They had, I think, 50,000 people show up at the memorial service. And the governor is being blamed for having signed a bill which was pro-criminal and anti-police. I mean, so Connecticut could be one of those sleepers you look up one day. Tiffany Smiley is, by every account, maybe the best candidate in the country. Tremendous story of her husband who was blinded by IEDs in Iraq. She worked with him and fought. He became the first commissioned officer ever to serve while blind. So there are a lot of really fascinating races around the country this year. Tough race in Arizona. Masters versus Kelly. What do you see? Well, that's another good example. My personal hunch is that Kelly will lose. And that Kelly will lose because in the same 12-hour period, he voted against hiring 13,000 more Border Patrol and for hiring 87,000 IRS agents. And given what's happened with illegal immigration in Arizona, my hunch is that that by itself becomes sort of the explanation. Uh, it's gotten to be a very close race. Again, Kelly has a huge amount of money. But part of what people don't understand is if you get an underlying current or tidal wave or whatever you want to call it, the money doesn't, doesn't work. For some reason, people just shrug it off and they don't pay attention to it. It would be sort of like if I was looking to buy a car this week and you showed me 15 consecutive ads for Ferrari, I still wouldn't buy a Ferrari because I can't afford it. I I wouldn't notice the ads because it's hopeless. And I think that a number of these candidates, I mean, I've been through this both ways. My first experience was 1958 when the Republicans just took a real beating. We were very competitive from basically from 46 to 58. And in 58, we went... He collapsed in the House, and we actually didn't recover until 94 when we got a majority. 
then I looked in uh, when we came along, you know, we picked up 54 seats in one election cycle. I watched in Watergate in 74, the Democrats knocked us off. And so you see these patterns. And what happens is simultaneously, and this is what I look for. I mean, simultaneously all across the country, you see things start to move. In 2006, they started to move for the Democrats. In 2010, they started to move for the Republicans. So I look at the governor's race in Illinois is now closing. It's getting closer, partly because they signed this idiotic bill that has no bail. After everything happening in the whole country on crime, the idea that you could pass a bill in the state legislature that has no bail when every sheriff, all but two of the district attorneys, everybody's opposed to it. You know, you just think, what are these guys thinking? So I look around and I see, I see New York is close, getting closer. The one place that's impervious to this is California. And that's for a whole series of separate reasons. But California is a totally different world now. But Oregon, we may win the governorship. Washington State, we may win the Senate race. I mean, these are things, that's when you can tell there's a tide because it's, it's not just one or two or three races, but it's, it's an underlying momentum where the country talks to itself. And basically it comes down to this ain't working. It's not complicated. One of the races I've been paying close attention to is Michigan. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that governor's race? Well, I, I was very active in trying to make sure that our nominee uh, got through the primary. And I think that she now has a real chance of winning the race. I think it's within two points. And uh, she's just a very impressive person. Let's shift to international affairs. The war in Ukraine. Is this a threat to U.S. and NATO security? Sure. I mean, if, if the Russians learn that they can attack a neighbor and in the end occupy that neighbor, they will next take uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. I mean, I mean, Putin is very clear and has said publicly that the greatest disaster of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. So from his perspective, he would like to reunify the Soviet Empire. Well, that has to involve uh, taking the three Baltic states back. Probably involves a series of other military actions. Uh, and uh, if they think they can get away with it, you know, they face a demographic crisis that's unbelievable. They will presently be a majority Muslim country. The Russian population is shrinking. Russian men now live about the same age as Guatemalan men. Between alcoholism and suicide, they are a population in decline. The other one, by the way, which people don't pay attention to is China. The consequence of China's one-child policy is that by 2070, China will be about the same population as the U.S. I mean, it's just it would be the most stunning demographic change in the world. Is the war in Ukraine an area where you would agree and align yourself with the administration's policy? I would have been more aggressive. They wanted to do enough to keep the Ukrainians in the war, but not enough to force the Russians to escalate. And as a result, they cost the lives of a lot of Ukrainians unnecessarily. I think had we transferred weapons faster, had we been willing to provide them information faster, they would have beaten the Russians much faster. As it is, the Ukrainians are getting better and better at what they're doing, and the Russians may have to go to nuclear weapons just to balance the battlefield. I mean, Putin has got a very, some very tough decisions to make. Is a nuclear strike a possibility? Absolutely. 
They have an absolute doctrine of using tactical nuclear weapons. We had the same doctrine for 30 years. And they see a real distinction between using a tactical nuclear weapon to take out a military site and using a strategic weapon to take out a city. So I absolutely believe they could do it. They probably won't, but we should not assume automatically, nor should we assume that that this thing can't escalate in a way that becomes very, very dangerous. What should the U.S. do should there be a nuclear strike? Uh, I think we have to hit them very hard. We have to convince the Russian elites that they will cease to exist if they don't get Putin under control. Does the cost of the war concern you? No. We throw away more money in COVID relief. We had $20 billion stolen from the California Unemployment Compensation Fund. You know, if you, just, if you could just mop up all the thieves, uh, you could pay for many Ukrainian wars. Fair point. How would you characterize our policies and relationships in the Middle East right now? Totally screwed up. I mean, Biden took a totally winning hand, which Trump had created in a way which I was frankly very surprised by. And Trump had convinced the Saudis that they could trust him. He had begun to build a real relationship in the Abraham Accords, which would unify Israel with the Arab states against Iran. The Iranian religious dictatorship is the mortal enemy of the Arabs and the mortal enemy of Israel and the United States. Obama, for some reason, got in his head that Iran was the pillar on which we would build a Middle East. And so with John Kerry's utterly incompetent and out of touch with reality leadership, we sent, I think, a billion dollars in cash, which if you think about it, I mean, you couldn't do a movie this stupid. And we did all sorts of other things uh, to try to make the Iranians happy. They were quite happy to get the money. That enabled them to pay for more terrorism and more military adventurism. And Biden has gone back to that policy, which has totally infuriated the Saudis, uh, has convinced everybody in the Arab world they can't trust the U.S., and convinced the Israelis that they have to prepare for a preemptive war because they are not going to allow the Iranians to have a nuclear weapon that could threaten basically a second holocaust. I mean, two nuclear weapons is a holocaust. What can we do to right the ship? Well, I think you have to have a huge election in 22 and a huge election in 24. And you have to hope that the team that gets elected understands how profound and how deep the reforms have to be. And I would say, looking at somebody like DeSantis in Florida, we have a generation of governors who are really very impressive. Uh, Abbott in Texas would be another one. Kemp in Georgia. I mean, these guys have really taken on the bureaucracy. They've taken on the policies. And they give me some hope that you really could see a very profound shift in the U.S. in the next four to six years. Newt, comments and thoughts on our relations with China today. And I think it was really interesting that when Speaker Pelosi was planning a trip to Taiwan, and many in the administration, many even in her own party, many in the media were discouraging her visit, you basically stepped up and said, she has to go. Why? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I was the only other senior government official to visit Taiwan. And when we did it, it was very deliberate and against the wishes of the Chinese communist, who nonetheless invited me to China to give several speeches. The only agreement we had was we had to go to Japan to go to Taiwan. We couldn't fly direct from China. But we didn't back down at all. 
he said, look, he forced us to choose. We're going to dump China and go to Taiwan. They said, oh, well, if you feel that strongly, why don't you come? So I gave speeches in Shanghai and Beijing. Once, once she announced that she was going to go, she could not back down. I mean, you couldn't allow the Chinese communists to think that they can blackmail the Speaker of the House. And I really liked uh, Admiral Stavridis uh, had come up with the idea of a porcupine strategy that we should so thoroughly arm Taiwan that it's impossible to conquer it. Now, there are some secondary problems because if they wanted to, the Chinese could probably create, the communist could probably create sort of no-fly zones and no-shipping zones, and they could make life a lot harder. On the other hand, that's a game two can play. The last time, I think, I, I don't remember which year it was, but there was a point where the Chinese communists tried to take a very small island that's about six or eight miles off the coast of China and got a very bloody nose and lost 9,000 troops trying to do it. And people forget that amphibious landings, other than the United States, nobody has done amphibious landings very well, ever. And when you start talking about the German army at its peak could not cross the English Channel, which is 21 miles across. The Straits of Taiwan are 140 miles Trying to launch an amphibious campaign across the Straits is a very formidable undertaking. And my hunch is that having watched the Russian army fail, that Xi Jinping is sort of saying to himself, I'm not sure my guys could do much better because they've never been in a real fight. And I mean, it's one thing to have peacetime maneuvers. It's another thing to engage in a real fight. And we, of course, for better or worse, have been fighting constantly since 1941. So our level of engagement is very different. People like to say we're a nation of peace, but there's been an awful lot of fighting. When I was commissioned as an army officer in 1990, I'll never forget a general stood up in in front of our whole class and basically made the point, every generation has their war. You will get yours. Yeah. Somebody actually wrote a very good book, which I think was called A Nation Born in War, which made that argument. You know, I can tell you this, as a former military officer, for better, for worse, I am always amazed, impressed, a whole host of adjectives of how well-formed our military and warfighting capabilities are. Right. Victor Davis Hanson's book, Carnage and Culture, makes a very compelling argument that I think has a lot of weight and a lot of merit on how lethal democratic thinking is during times of war. And in a previous podcast episode, John Rendon makes a point about the corrosive effect that authoritarian regimes have on militaries and their capabilities. I'm much more concerned about China's economic power versus their war fighting. I read this morning that the Biden administration is preparing for another summit with China. What do you expect? Who knows? I mean, my hunch is it'll be relatively pleasant. Although I have to say the Biden administration bureaucracy has been much tougher on China than I would have guessed. You look at the number of people we've arrested. You look at the number of things we've done to cut them off in terms of chip production and chip development. There are a lot of places where we're squeezing them now. And I think uh, that that may continue. So I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't expect a whole lot to come out of a, a meeting like that. At premise, we turn heads over the summer by releasing polling data that showed in a 2024 theoretical matchup for the Republican primary that despite all Trump's issues, he was crushing his potential opponents. 
The spread between Trump and his nearest opponent, Ron DeSantis, was about 40 points. Today, that lead has shrunk significantly. As we stand here today, it's gone from about 64% in favor of Trump, 15% in favor of DeSantis, with Mike Pence and some others at the bottom of the stack. But today, it's 44-30. What's happening? Well, I think two things. I think that uh, DeSantis has had a very good run and has got very good press uh, and has done a lot of very smart things. Uh, And I think that Trump has an extraordinarily passionate base, but he has not grown the policy-oriented leadership that he could have potentially grown. So I think that he's in some danger of looking like the past and DeSantis looking like the future. And there are very few occasions in American history where the past beats the future. Let's have some fun here, Newt. Um, Assuming the Republicans control Congress after the election, what advice would you give to leadership? What would you tell them to focus on during their first 100 days? One, base everything on the desires of the American people so you have momentum from back home giving you additional pressure on the White House and on the Democrats. Second, recognize that it takes about four months to build an issue if you're in the legislative branch and takes about a week in the White House. So you've got to pick big fights and spend at least four months winning the fight. Third, figure out how you're going to coordinate with the Senate so that the House Republicans who are going to be relatively cohesive can actually get stuff through the Senate. Fourth, I would say, Spend 90% of your time on big positive solutions and 10% on investigations. So kind of following on today's theme, don't play politics of politics. Yeah, I think think what the country's eager for is a serious party that's trying to actually make their lives better. So with some of these big issues we face, like inflation, like crime, what can Congress do? Oh, you can do a lot of things. Uh, You can control spending. You can cut regulations. I helped develop the supply-side approach in the 1970s with Jack Kemp and Art Laffer and others, Lou Jude Winiski. And there, there are two ways to defeat inflation. One way is to crush demand. The other way is to dramatically increase supply. If you increase supply, you have the same effect on mopping up money that you get by crushing demand, but it's a lot more pleasant. So I would say, one, they should codify the tax cuts. Two, they should go through a lot of deregulation. Three, they ought to look at this whole issue of corruption. The amount of money, I saw one estimate that $600 billion of the COVID relief money is stolen. Well, they ought to find, you know, get the money back. I think most of the $120 billion that was allocated for reopening the schools has never been spent. They ought to pull it back. Can they? They can claw it back? Sure. It's just have to pass a law. But I think our their attitude should look... One of the things we did that truly was amazing was working with Bill Clinton. We produced four consecutive balanced budgets, the only time in your lifetime. We actually were paying down the federal debt. And Alan Greenspan at the Federal Reserve actually had a working group trying to figure out how they would manage the money supply if there was no debt. Because you could project ahead. When I left office, we projected paying off the debt by 2009. So it's all, we know it's possible because we've done it. And so I would set that as a major goal. On crime, I would start by rating all the district attorneys, and I would pass a bill that cuts off all federal funding to jurisdictions that refuse to prosecute criminals. 
and just say, look, if, if, you know, if, if, if you're determined to be lawless, we don't have any reason to spend money on you. And you'd pretty rapidly begin to shift the whole balance of that kind of behavior. On the border, you just have to complete the wall and be serious and deport people. Don't process them into the U.S. Send them home. What you're talking about here is really legislative power. It seems like in recent times, starting with Obama, even Trump, Trump followed suit. Presidents are quick to the pen in using executive power to implement policy. Sure. Does that trouble you? Well, I, th- I think it's not healthy in the long run, but I think a Congress that knows what it's doing can use the power of the purse to cut most of that off. I mean, you just pass up something which says no money can be spent on this. So, Newt, as we wrap up today, I'd like to thank you. I, I learned a tremendous amount today, and I'm sure our audience did as well. One of the things that we ask of our guests is that if they're no longer with us, what three insights would you like to leave behind? Almost like a legacy. That freedom really matters. That freedom only exists with strength. And that finding a way to love your neighbor is vital if the human race is going to survive. Thank you, sir. Okay. Okay.